0: Jan Gru is the author of I Live a Life Like Yours, a memoir. Jan is the author of a wide-ranging body of work in fiction, nonfiction, children's books, and academic literature, and is a professor at the University of Oslo. I Live a Life Like Yours was published in 2018 in Norway, where it won the Norwegian Critics Prize for Literature and was nominated to the Nordic Council Literature Prize, the first Norwegian nonfiction book to be so honored in 50 years. It was translated into English. Welcome, Jan. Thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books to discuss I Live a Life Like Yours, a memoir.
2: Thank you. (laughs) And uh, yeah, the book is here now. So great.
0: Very exciting. You are such a beautiful writer. I mean, I'm sure you know this, but maybe it will be nice to hear. But uh, like your prose, the way you write, it's so poetic and lyrical and just gorgeous. So I just wanted to start with that. I was so impressed and just kind of riveted and brought in by your, the style of your writing, not to mention your amazing story. So. Thank you. Thank you so much. Bravo for that. Would you mind telling listeners a little bit about your story and your memoir, why you wrote this and the the main themes it was about?
2: Sure. Sure. I'll, I'll give it a try. So, I mean, probably the place to start is that I'm a wheelchair user and I was born with muscular dystrophy. I remember a very happy childhood. I did have a very happy childhood. The reason why I wrote this book, I mean, I I wrote it for, I think, nearly 10 years. It's one of those books that took a long time to find its shape. But the real sort of catalyzing event was a little while after I became father when my parents asked me whether I wanted to take over their archive, really, of papers from my childhood. And I said, yes. And my mother came by my my office at the university with about three or four feet of paper. These were letters that they'd written, documents they'd saved, really everything that documented their interactions with doctors, with bureaucracies, really documenting all the work uh, they had to do during my childhood. So I sat down and I read all those papers all the way through, and that was something of a shock, because that described a childhood very, very different from the one I remembered. That childhood was all about my diagnosis, my condition, my limitations, and really very poor prospects for the future. And so the book is really my attempt to try to, to reconcile those two stories, the one I remember and the one that, you know, the medical bureaucracy remembers, very different stories.
0: Wow. That must have been, I feel like, how long did it take you to go through all those papers? I feel like they would have arrived on my desk and I would have stayed up for like three days trying to get through it all.
2: Yeah, I mean, it it took a long while. And the strange thing is that, I I mean, I did remember some of the stuff in those papers, you know, visits to to go and see doctors when I was very young, but also, you know, holidays where the wheelchair van uh, never appeared, where nothing was as promised. And then, of course, the the letters that, you know, the documented how my parents had tried to rearrange things, had succeeded sometimes, had, you know, made their complaints afterwards. So I I got to see really the, the story surrounding my child in many ways and the way that the, the, the way that the world saw well me perhaps and, and saw us as a family
0: one of the most moving scenes was when you asked your parents like how was it for them as parents of you was it difficult was it you know, and how they responded and how emotional and the struggle for like to capture it all like tell me about that moment
2: yeah no I think the, the thing we had to sort of acknowledge to each other was that there, there was always something. And, and that that something was an immense amount of work. and of course we, you know this better than I do, but having children is is a lot of work in in any case. but what they faced was was something different because there was such uh, there were so many struggles with various agencies that were you know supposed to be there to help. and of course they they did help sometimes. but also there was this constant fight to to claim our rights and to try and make make things work and to to try and secure a happy childhood for, for, for me and for my sister.
0: Wow. And even the image you, you start off in the beginning by saying how people you run into who you used to know as a child are like surprised that you're around, you know, I mean, that's like quite. Yeah.
2: I mean, that did happen to me quite a few times and it it, it was, I'm I'm sure it was a strange experience for them as well, but for me, it was a really uh, existential shock. So, okay. So that was what people expected back then.
0: Wow. And the misdiagnosis, that was another like huge ter- sort of I feel yeah, like, yeah. turning point. Like, what was that like that you your whole life you had believed one thing and then suddenly it was disproven?
2: Yeah, I mean that that's I mean that, that speaks to advances in, in medical science, right? Because the, the time I was first diagnosed, they were working from muscle muscle biopsies and really very crude categories. And then of course came the age of genetic text testing. And a lot of the old categories became broken up into hundreds of, of new ones. But yeah, I mean, that, that diagnosis was something I, I thought of as a, a pretty essential part of myself with a poor prognosis and, and everything. And then discovering that th- this can't be right somehow. I mean, I, I was not expected to be able to walk at the age of 20. I'm still walking at the age of 40. And so at some point in my early 20s, you know, I, I realized that something was was off in those projections. But it was a, a huge change and, and reorientation, it really was.
0: So when you were growing up, did you have like that you, your prognosis was going to be in your 20s in the back of your head all the time? Like, is that something it, you consciously thought about?
2: Yeah, it, it, I not necessarily consciously, but it, it was definitely something I, I, I felt and experienced. And I'd, I, I'd, I'd, In the book, I talk about the sense of having not enough time or knowing that the time is, is precious. And then I think I probably have that in, in common with quite, quite a few disabled people feeling that intense need to, to prove myself. So then, 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 of course, those two things were really tightly connected.
0: Wow. You know, there's this like distillation of life when you have suddenly some sort of set, you know, timeline affixed. Right. Usually it's very unknown. Yeah. So what happens when you work backwards from that and then it's like infinitely extended? Like, it's such an interesting question. Do you still feel like, because now like none of us knows our true diagnosis, right? We don't of course. know. So how do you then live everyday life sort of in suspense of? I don't know. I mean, this is sort of a bigger question than the book, but it's, you know. It
2: is, but it, it also speaks to, I think, the, the immense power that diagnoses have, have over a lot of our lives. And uh, these are, I mean, somatic or physical diagnoses, mental, psychiatric diagnoses. These have an incredible power of determination because they, they, they tell you what, what story you're supposed to live in. Yeah. And that's that's not necessarily correct because diagnoses are are incredibly crude in, in many ways. They, they can't capture... Very much about the life, and yet they hold this this power over us.
0: True, it's almost it's like goes back to cognitive behavioral therapy, right? Where it's like your thoughts control your feelings, right? And if your thought is that this is fact, then you're gonna yeah you're gonna feel and act a certain way. But
2: yeah, and if they, if somebody puts a label on you, then at some point you're going to have to you know relate to that.
0: But I loved how you sort of tracked the relationship of your with between you and your parents, and then of course you and your wife and your son, like yeah. over time and how all of those are kind of like, you know, almost like a sign curve, like kind of waving up and down over time. And when you broke your ankle, how you had to move back in and they had to start the caregiving from scratch and how demoralizing that must have felt to you. What was that period of time like?
2: Yeah, that, that was not a good time in my life. And that was felt like sort of the, the, the last and, and possibly lowest point before, I would say things really turned around. I stayed in, in, in their house in my childhood home for about a month while recovering. And then after that, you know, it felt in one way like the, the only way to go was, was up. So I, I got a PhD fellowship. I started writing school and started writing things that will, some of them eventually made their way into this book. But it was a very strange time because it, it felt like one of those turning points where things could have also taken a turn for the worse. You never know. Yep. And I know that, I mean, statistically speaking, I'm, I'm one of the exceptions. I mean, it's a, the the numbers are terrible in, in Norway and in the US. It's something like one in, one in 20 wheelchair users, perhaps, has a job.
0: Wow. Well, what we were saying a a minute or two ago about time, and sorry, I'm flipping through because there were so many quotes and I just want to make sure I'm trying to give a sense of how amazing your writing is. But this is your experience with being a father, but there's more quotes you have on time, which are amazing. But you said, time with an infant is pure kairos. I am writing after one and a half years as a father. It is a long now the moment stretches out and swallows the horizon. I just kind of loved that because it's true. It's like the time sometimes feels completely endless, but this was, I think my favorite part in the whole book. When you, you gave a a really vivid description of what it takes for you to get ready in the morning and how you have to allocate a lot of time and you broke it down step-by-step on what your morning routine has, has Become and everything. And you said, I cannot hurry. This is a sobering bit of evidence in my case and a crucial factor a gigantic boulder in the middle of the road. I cannot hurry to the subway because my wheelchair can only go the speed that it goes. I cannot run. If I leave five minutes late from my home, I will arrive five minutes late at my destination. I cannot hurry to the bathroom. If I try to walk faster than my normal speed, I trip and fall. Time is inelastic. I require the time that I require. I just loved that. I mean, Thank you. it's beautifully written, A, eh, but just such an important message. I mean, sometimes you just have to, like we all just, re- you require the time you require. It seems like so basic and yet it's like a life-shifting philosophy, right? Yeah,
2: I'm, I'm really glad you you picked out that passage because I, I, it's one of the things I, I really worked at trying and give a sense of what the world looks like when you have a particular kind of body, when you have a certain physical limitations. It's, it changes everything. It changes your, your, your being in the world. And and in doing so it changes the world
0: itself. Wow. I remember maybe this is like oversharing, but when I was nursing and, you know, you have to like pump for a certain amount of time, like when you're not with your kid. Right. And I went to this wedding and I was like, well, I have to pump for 10 minutes so I can like, you know, survive the rest of the night. So I go into like the wedding trailer right at the place. And I start pumping and everyone starts banging on the door, right? Like now I'm causing this whole big line and I'm like, oh my God, I need time to speed up. I need this 10 minutes to go faster. But then I was like, 10 minutes is going to be 10 minutes. Like no matter what I do, I cannot make this go any faster. So all I can do is change the way I think about it. But the more I like stress and sweat and like feel like all that anxiety, it's not making the time go any, any, any faster. So I don't know.
2: <laughs> no, but I I, I I totally get that. I mean, they talked about this a lot with my with my wife, who's who's of course also a, a writer, and the, the experiences of, of her experience of pregnancy, childbirth and and early motherhood there there's a lot there in terms of bodily vulnerability, and then that sense of just having to in in some cases, just surrender to those constraints because there there, there is really no other option.
0: Yeah, and I don't mean to like you know elevate my silly nursing story to your, you know, being in a wheelchair, but you know, But I think the point yeah. is that time is yeah. time is something we can't really mess with, even though we think we can, like, you know, yeah.
2: Yeah. And, and I think it's important to remember that even though one thing is not like the other, there are, you know, points of connection and those points of connection are incredibly important to remember also because disability often gets very isolated as a topic and we forget that it, it's really about, well, also aspects of, of human vulnerability that, that reach all of us in, in various forms.
0: Well, I think it's so easy for people to just so be so afraid of an, of the other or right. It's like, it's, it's an admission to people to themselves that this, you know, this could happen to them. And like, you know, it's a reminder that I think people can't necessarily cope with sometimes certain people at, at least. And so you know, the shorthand is not to deal with it at all. Yeah, Forget that, like, what do you mean? Like, we're all the same. Like, you're not different. Like, I'm not different because I'm sitting down right now than I was two seconds ago when I was standing up. So
2: anyway. Yeah. No, you're absolutely right. I mean, the, the philosopher Julia Kristeva talks about abjection, about that sort of intense fear and revulsion that you feel, in yourself but then you then project onto to someone else and that someone else is often someone with a disability with an illness someone that you can really put all those you know scary feelings into
0: yeah i have a very close friend with als and you know over time you know she talks in a computer now with her eyes and you know over time her friends who visit have like dropped off Right. Like, and I still, I don't go, you know, she doesn't, we don't live in the same place anymore, but you know, it's so easy to just not pay the visit. Right. Yeah. So easy to say like, no, no, but like we have like, nothing has changed. We have the, she's hilarious and amazing. Like nothing's changed. And so I have the best time. doesn't matter now. Anyway. So I feel sort of passionately about this whole, whole thing and, you know, and people being intolerant to anybody in any situation is just... You know, important to me. So anyway. Yeah. So tell me a little bit more about the writing side of your life and your, you know, academia, which is so important to you and like how you decided now's the time to, to sort of bring this book out into the world and and all of that, how all of that sort of revolves in your life.
2: Yeah, I mean that that's been a strange journey too. I mean, I I started out publishing some collections of short stories for an audience of like four readers, because that's what <laughs> short stories are like these days. <laughs> And they were mostly speculative fiction, which is, you know, science fiction without the, the hard math, which is good for me. But I still think I learned something from that, just in the sense of trying to imagine different worlds and different ways of looking at the world. And of course, as you as you pointed out, there's, there's quite a lot about time in the book and the shape of time and different ways of experiencing time. And so I, I wrote some experimental fiction in, in that vein, vein, dealing with those topics. Wrote a novel and then started work on 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 this book. After that, when I felt that I had maybe built up some experience with the, the craft of writing, because it felt like I needed that experience in order to deal with with these topics. So this was, you know, obviously a very important book for me to to get right. But then. It turned out that it, it it became this strange mixture of different genres. I mean, one book that was really important to me in my writing was *The Argonauts* by Megan Nelson. Mm-hmm. It's just it's a it's a wonderful poetic academic book about embodiment as well. And I learned from her that if I want to put academic references and academic quotes into a a more a, a book that's supposed to be more poetic, then I can. I just need to to select the right quote, academia doesn't have to be dry. It doesn't have to create distance. If you find just the right observation, then it has, you know, all, all the power of good poetry. Wow. And I try, I try to combine those things.
0: Interesting. Yeah, no, I mean, I started off by saying it felt very much like a poem. It felt, you know, that's definitely the vibe it gives off to the reader, the lay reader, if you will. So what are you doing now? Like, do you want to, now that you have this out, What are you thinking next? Like, do you want to continue pursuing this type of writing? Do you want to continue sharing? Like, do you like having like a back and forth relationship with the reader versus putting, you know, how is, how are you seeing your output sort of in the future?
2: Yeah, well, I mean, speaking of time, I mean, you, I'm kind of speaking to you from three years in the future because my book came out in Norwegian in 2018.
0: Oh, okay. <laughs> so
2: it's uh, so the, the translation takes time. So it's, since the book came out in Norway, I had a lot of really interesting conversations with readers, letters, messages. and It was really a, a wonderful process, and I, then I won't wound up writing a new book, which is coincidentally that play out in Norway this week.
0: Oh no. Oh, my
2: gosh. Uh, yeah, okay. no it's, it's it's really 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 true. And then this new book is, I would say, almost a counter book and a, a more political book dealing with uh, different stories about uh, disability. So yeah, I mean i'm I'm definitely going to continue in this in this vein. and I'm drawing on uh, us disability studies mm-hmm. in my work and in my my writing. And Norway is, a, is an interesting contrast because I mean we have a wonderful welfare state compared with with you guys. We have not had all of the, um, I would say, cultural space to think and talk about disability that the U.S. has had. And that's um, that's one of the reasons why I bring California and Berkeley and the the Bay Area into the book, because I I learned so much from from people working there. Mm. But that cultural moment seems to be happening in Norway these days. So a lot of disabled people are entering into the public sphere. And the conversation seems to be, be changing in many ways. And it's it's a very interesting moment to be a part of.
0: Here too, I mean, in the United States. I mean, I also recently interviewed a woman named Mallory Wegman, who is in a wheelchair because of a, she went and got a shot from a doctor and it paralyzed her when she was training for the Olympics. And now she's actually a Paralympic you know, gold medalist and all this stuff. And she wrote a book called Limitless. But a lot of the themes are, are the same in terms, you know, overcoming and what you have to, you know. But her message was so positive, not to say yours is not. I just mean like her message was like, she's like, I was meant to be here because I need to tell everybody all of this stuff. Anyway, you should read it. It's really good. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I will. And if you want me to connect you, I'd be happy to put you guys in touch. Maybe you could do an event together or something really cool. Because anyway, great. Yeah. Yeah, she's a wonderful, she's really great. And my, my husband's now actually helping with her documentary because he's a producer. So anyway, oh, she's great. Wonderful. Yeah. So I, I noticed in the New York times review of your book that people are calling attention to your dressing style. How did you feel about that? Did it make, yeah. How did you feel?
2: Yeah, <laughs> no, things, I think it's, you know? well, it's, it's, it's gratifying. No, I mean, it's, it's, <laughs> it, I, I do make a point of it and I, I do make a point of it because I, I think it's uh, something that, again, a lot of disabled people have experience with that you, you really need to think about your appearance Because it's so easy to become discredited if anything is off. You know, there are a lot of people who are wheelchair users who are also homeless. And so you get a stereotype. And so you get stigma. And uh, it becomes, you know, quite important to to navigate that that stigma in in different ways. It's that thing of Rosemary Garland-Thompson, the disability scholar, talks about this a lot in, in her wonderful book called Staring, How We Look. About how being a staree, someone who it's, you know, socially legitimate to stare at, that person will always be conscious of being the object of other people's stares and will have to negotiate in that in in some way. Mm -hmm. And so for me, you know, thinking about clothes and trying to find clothes that actually fit me, which is is not an easy task, became something that I, I wanted to bring into the book as a way of talking about, you know, looks, appearances, and all of those negotiations as well.
0: I wonder if in the book stare they they talk about fame because that's another reason why people stare at people. Right? It's you can look different or you can just be so well known. I wonder if the effect on the staree is the same, sort of for different reasons. You know? Yeah.
2: Yeah. That, that that that's an interesting. I mean, I'm, I'm not trying to come off as as, as horrible here but, uh, but I have been picked out uh, on, on the street f- for having written books for having appeared on, on in, in the media and and so now I never know you know <laughs> it could be that kind of attention it could be the other kind of attention I can't be sure and it's, a, it's an interesting kind of ambiguity to to live with these days for you know however long this sort of micro-celebrity in Norway lasts.
0: Yeah. No, because I feel like here, you know, people give celebrities a really hard time. Like, oh yeah, it's hard for you. I'm really sorry. Cry me a river, you know. But there is something to not being able to sort of move through the world in a, in a yeah. way that, I mean, I don't know. I'm not a celebrity. I have no idea. But anyway. Yeah,
2: I, just... no, I, I, I can imagine. I mean, in, in my case, it, it felt like I'm, I'm going to get people's attention, whatever I do. Mm-hmm. so it it may it may as well be be positive attention, you know?
0: yeah. I mean, for you, go, you know, milk it. Why not? But <laughs> it's great. Sure. Do you have any advice for aspiring authors?
2: Yeah, I mean, that, that, that's that's a great question, right? I mean, and the, the answer is always, you know, simple and incredibly difficult. It's, it's to, to, to write. I mean, for, for me, the, the transformative year was a writing school here in Oslo, where I had to write stuff I would never have written on my own, to just try everything, different voices, different angles, different genres, different, you know, exercises, and then discovering my voice along the way. I'd written a lot of academic texts before, but this was something completely different. And I discovered that writing in a different way will also sometimes allow you to write about different topics. I mean, it's, it's really a sort of a a process of discovering what is within you.
0: Wow. That's great. Well, Jan, thank you so much. This was so interesting. And again, your book was absolutely beautiful. And I just thank you for, for spending the time with me today.
2: Thank you so much for having me.